and pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you for this time to be together. Thank you for my brothers. And these are always encouraging times to talk about the things that are the most important. And pray that you bless this time together and help us to have a fruitful discussion and to conform our views and our thoughts to your holy word. And I pray that you bless us now to that end. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, of the civil magistrate. God, the supreme Lord and king of all the world, hath ordained civil magistrates to be under him over the people for his own glory and the public good. And to this end, hath armed them with the power of the sword for the defense and encouragement of them that are good and for the punishment of evildoers. That's so significant. Um, God is a God of government. And brothers, what are, what are the four spheres of government that God has created? There's actually four. Self. Self family. Family. Church, Church and state. state. And, and each one of them, each one of those spheres of jurisdiction has laws that govern it. And they also have means of punishment. Like in the family, what is the, what is the uh, means of punishment? The, the rod of correction, right? Spanking. People are like, well, that doesn't work on my kid. People used to tell me all the time, oh, we don't, we don't do that because it doesn't work. And I've learned over the years. I, at first, I wasn't sure how to respond to that. But I, I've learned to respond, then you're not doing it right. Right. Yeah, there's, you're doing it in anger or you're not doing it consistently. If you do it in a self-controlled way and are consistent in what you expect from them, it's pretty amazing how, how little you'll have to do it. Mm-hmm. If they know what you expect from them. The same thing, you know, with church. You know, people take their membership vows and every time we do a new members class, and we're about to start one again because there's been a number of, of visitors, I always tell all of them, if, if you take these vows and then suddenly you, like one of you guys goes off and has a girlfriend on the side, we're going to come after you. I want you to know we're not going to let you do that. Like we will come get you and try to pull you back. So we're not going to, one of these churches is just going to push that aside. We will exercise the discipline that I said, it's the worst part of pastoral ministry. I wish that we never had to do it. It makes my stomach hurt and it makes me lose sleep, but we have to do it. So that's that sphere of jurisdiction. And then there's also the state. And the state only has the sword for the punishing of evildoers. And it's also supposed to, you know, praise the righteous and countenance the church and things like that. But one thing that's interesting about this, I think it's really important. So often our prisons are called correctional facilities. Right. As if that's part of the government's job is to reform criminals and, like, turn them good or whatever. Well, see, that, that's yeah. always the, that's the big debate in that in that area mm-hmm. right so mm-hmm. incarceration you know the, you have the the far liberals will argue against mm-hmm. harsh sentences and yes they'll say whoa look at these examples like in in i guess the netherlands where they have these work situations where yeah. people and they say how that's reforming yeah prisoners right? it doesn't and o- over the years, um, I've known enough detectives and police people, and they've described, they said prison is one of the worst ideas anyone's ever had because they're criminal college. Yeah, they learn. Those guys go in there, yeah. they corrupt each other, and they learn how to be better criminals. And you think, okay, in the Old Testament, in biblical law, there's fines and execution. That's it. That's all you've got. And, and the thing is, Romans 13, that passage where it talks about the magistrate, the magistrate has one thing, the sword. Mm-hmm. What are they supposed to do? Punish bad people. Now, if you steal or if you break something, you're, you have to pay back. Right. And in biblical law, if you couldn't pay back, what did you have to do? You worked for the guy. Yeah, you became you became a slave until you worked it off. Now it wasn't lifetime slavery; it wasn't permanent. At the end of every every seventh year, what they have to do? Cancel all the debts and set everyone away. And when you sent your slaves away, you had to give them something to go get started again. Yeah, to help them get started. Yeah, and it was a good system. It it worked well when it was followed. It it worked pretty well. Because there's a sense of, of ownership. You know, people are, are forced to take responsibility for themselves rather than go get three squares a day for the rest of your life on taxpayer money. I right. think that's terrible. There are guys that are like serial killers in prison who, you know, they have a place to sleep and warm right. food to eat and everything. And you think, that's terrible. These are murderers. Well, that, that, well, and that's the thing that, you, you, you know, when you hear on the news and they talk about executions and who's up for execution and, mm-hmm. you know, a guy that, 
you know, it's like the thing in, in Milwaukee where the guy ran into the people. Mm-hmm. I'm like, why are they haggling? You know, they yeah. felt like they gave him something by tacking on six life sentences. Yeah. But biblically, what should happen to that guy? Yeah. Did, did I mean, you? He's, he's, a, he's a murderer. I know. He should be with murderers. He should be put to death right away. And did you catch some of the things I read at the last Sunday morning sermon about the judicial system in, in Israel and how good it was? Well, if you were condemned to death, I mean, it was three days later. Three days after that, you'd be put to death. And you think, okay, that just gave everybody time to think about it and make sure they still affirm that verdict. They, they wanted to protect the person. Think about like, modern and modern times, serial killers that have just, their appeals have gone on forever. Like Ted Bundy was, oh, yeah. was sentenced to death in 1978. The guy yeah. wasn't executed until 1989. Yeah. John Wayne Gacy, another one who killed 33 people. He was... He was convicted and sentenced to death in the late 70s and was not executed until 1994, I think it was. And you think, how can that happen? That is so wrong. But it's because our criminal justice system thinks it's their job to reform people. And they've made a circus out of the Manson. Yeah, that whole thing. How can that guy still be alive? I mean, that has been just a... It's... The thing that they did was so heinous. Yeah. We, we as society celebrate it because they've made movies out of it they have they've had the women on panels yeah we have more sympathy for the the criminals than we do the victims in, in a lot of ways you think well they're they're the the product of, of bad environments or they were mistreated or, or something and it's like no sometimes people do what they do because they're just evil mm-hmm. so okay and in fact god even says in the old testament and i want you to purge the evil out in other words, you got to you have to execute them. Okay, so there you have um, just the basic role of government is to punish bad people and to encourage good people, well, obedient in, people. I was going to say in the Old Testament, even even if you had a disobedient drunkard son, mm-hmm. he was supposed to be put out and stoned to death. Yeah, I, evidently, and I, I can't remember where I read this. In most countries, that was also true. If, a, if a, a young man, an underage, a teenage kid, if they were caught for the third time stealing, they'd be put to death. Mm-hmm. Because they just realized this, this, is a, this individual is nothing but trouble, and they, they can't even restrain themselves. Did you have stealing? I'm sorry? <laughs> I say you didn't have a problem with young thieves if you did that. That's you right. That often. And so we wonder why mm-hmm. things just perpetuate in, in, in our society. We just don't deal with it right. They don't. And because of that, people don't fear the law. Mm-hmm. If there were a few examples made and like the, it was followed biblically and accurately, there'd be a lot less crime because mm-hmm. people would be more afraid to disobey it. So we can talk about that forever. But <laughs> point two, it is lawful for Christians to accept and execute the office of a magistrate. You know why they, the Westminster Divines put this in here? Because there were Anabaptists who said it was a sin to do that. Mm-hmm. You, can't, you can't be in political office. And they said no, uh, Christians should be in political office because we understand law and we understand the truth about things like that. When called thereunto, in the managing whereof, as they ought especially to maintain piety, justice, and peace, according to the wholesome laws of each commonwealth. So for that end, they may lawfully, now under the New Testament, wage war upon just and necessary occasion. Okay, so that's an important thing, the idea of a, of a just war. would would only be really a defensive war. It wouldn't be imperialism. It wouldn't be like, let's expand our borders and attack and get their resources. It's more so, if we're attacked, we can declare war on someone and fight. Okay, point three. Civil magistrates may not assume to themselves the administration of the word and sacraments or the power of the keys of the kingdom of heaven, meaning they can't excommunicate people from the church or censor them or anything, or in the least interfere in matters of faith. Yet, as nursing fathers, it is the duty of civil magistrates to protect the church of our common Lord without giving the preference to any denomination of Christians above the rest in such a manner that all ecclesiastical persons, whatever, shall enjoy the full, free, and unquestioned liberty of discharging every part of their sacred functions without violence or danger. And as Jesus Christ hath appointed a regular government and discipline in his church, no law of any commonwealth should interfere with, let, or hinder the due exercise thereof, among the voluntary members of any denomination of Christians, according to their own profession and belief, it is the duty of civil magistrates to protect the person and good name of all their people, 
in such an effectual manner as that no person be suffered either upon pretense of religion or of infidelity to offer any indignity, violence, abuse, or injury to any other person whatsoever, and to take order that all religious and ecclesiastical assemblies be held without molestation or disturbance. And you guys know, historically, this paragraph um, was radically changed in America from what it originally was. In the original Westminster Confession, this paragraph said it is the duty of the civil magistrate to suppress heresy. Because the, the world they were coming out of, the, the church and the state were very much united. Mm-hmm. And the Reformation, when the Reformation happened, you, you still had this principle that had been operating really since the, the 800s, all the way up to the 16th century. This principle was the ruler of the region determines the, the religion of the region. We had to learn that Latin phrase, quius regio, eus religio. The ruler of the region determines the religion of the region. So when the Reformation happened, it was almost inevitable. Over a hundred years of war started in Europe. And it was a big old mess. When everybody came here to the United States, which it wasn't the United States back then, it was just the, the colonies. What they recognized, what these Westminster divines' descendants recognized in the 1720s and 1730s, they could tell... The idea that the magistrate can call synods, like can call a synod of the church and be present at it, and that the magistrate is supposed to suppress heresy, they, they realize you can't do that unless you have a state church. Mm-hmm. And when they got here, it's like, there's already Catholics, Anglicans, now we got Methodists, now there's Baptists, Congregationalists, Presbyterians, Continental Reform, they realized... We're never going to have a state church here. There's too many denominations here. Mm-hmm. And so it's fascinating historically to read about this. I, I've got a book called Colonial Presbyterianism and read the section about, because I, I always wondered, how, why did they modify this the way they did? What, in 1729, first Presbyterian meeting in, on soil here, they all got together and every single guy there took an exception to the wording of this. Every one of them did. And said, yeah, w- we don't want the magistrate thinking that he's supposed to suppress heresy because it's never going to work here. There's too many groups here. And it was kind of the church coming of age in that way. I don't think that the magistrate... I, but here, here's the primary reason I would reject that. I don't see in Scripture anywhere that, the mag, that it's their duty to suppress heresy, number one. Um, I don't think they have any competence to do it. Like, the church itself struggles to suppress heresy. You don't want the magistrate thinking he's supposed to do it. And historically, every single time that the magistrate has thought it was their duty to do that, what ends up happening? Heresy. That's right. <laughs> they enforce heresy and they, they imprison the good guys. You know, you think of like Athanasius, you know, defending the deity of Christ for 60 years after the first Nicene Council. That guy was attacked by everybody. And that's why there's a statue of him that says Athanasius contramundum, Athanasius against the world. Because here this poor guy's trying to defend the deity of Christ, and he's constantly got Roman emperors who are being, you know, having poison poured into their ears by Arians, people that deny the deity of Christ. And so he's persecuted constantly by the magistrate. And so historically it was a bloodbath, but my primary reason for rejecting it is I don't think it's taught in Scripture. It's not what the magistrate's job is. It's not to suppress heresy. It's also, it, it says in the original, they are to take order in the church, that reform or abuses in worship are reformed and that synods be called and that they are to assure that what is transacted in those synods is in accordance with the word of God. I'm thinking, yeah, we want, we want Joe Biden to make sure our synods stuff is transacted according to the word of God. Like, no, that's not a good idea. Our country okay. right now is so far away from that. They, I, know. They, I think they did early on have very... Mm-hmm good discussions about we yeah. we can't even have a, a competent discussion about it today in, yeah. in our civil magistrate circles I mean, yeah. just... see but the thing is though if we do have widespread revival I would still be an opponent of it because all it takes is one generation Let, let's say we get a really well catechized congress that they're all reformed believers and they love the word of God, they love the gospel, a president that loves the gospel, a vice president loves the gospel and they believe the word of God, all it takes is a couple of generations later, right. a couple more elections. Right. Yeah, and then you've got bad bad guys or liberals 
that will start imprisoning people and they'll start and thinking they're doing God's service. Right. So that's not the duty of the magistrate. The duty of the magistrate is just to keep order, general order in society in terms of economic policies and also just punishing people that do what's wrong. Well, you have that <coughs> way going on today with the censure that happens in, in you know, public media circles. And yeah. They will censor certain people. That's right. Based off of what that person believes. Yeah. You know, what happened. Yeah. Big time over COVID, where mm-hmm. they, they said misinformation. Yeah. Well, you know, I I I can't. I was concerned that the CDC was a misinformation machine. Oh, I, you know, I doubt an about institution it. that that Americans have trusted for yep. years. Mm-hmm. We find out how corrupt that organization really is now. Yeah. Yeah. And they're suppressing everything that goes against it, in a sense, as them suppressing what they deem to be heresy. Because yeah. it goes against their views of various things. Yeah. So, okay. Point four. <clears throat> it is the duty of people to pray for magistrates. Okay. That's an important one. Like, you always hear me do that. I mean, I do that in my pastoral prayer. I try to remember to do that every Sunday because we're supposed to do that. First Timothy chapter two says that. To honor their persons, to pay them tribute or other dues, to obey their lawful commands, and to be subject to their authority for conscience's sake. Infidelity or difference in religion doth not make void the magistrates' just and legal authority, nor free the people from their due obedience to them. Okay, so think, think about that. So if we have a Muslim who is our president or, or our local magistrate, we still have to respect them. and We still have to honor and give honor them. Even Luther very famously said, I would rather be governed by a wise Turk than a stupid Christian. <laughs> so... Boy. That's a very real possibility. Yeah. <laughs> yep. From which ecclesiastical persons are not uh, exempted. In other words, a ch- churchman, you have to obey the magistrate too. Much less hath the Pope any power and jurisdiction over them and their dominions, meaning the Pope doesn't have authority over presidents or rulers of countries, or over any of their people, and least of all, to deprive them of their dominions or lives if he shall judge them to be heretics or upon any other pretense whatsoever. And at the time, you know, in the 1600s, when they wrote this, the popes were still doing that. We were trying to, you know, the, the Inquisition and the Pope's armies were, were still very much trying, the Jesuits, all, all that stuff. It was a big old bloodbath mess. So they're saying the Pope has no authority to do that. Okay, marriage and divorce, chapter 24. Marriage is to be between one man and one woman, Neither is it lawful for any man to have more than one wife, nor for any woman to have more than one husband at the same time. Okay, pretty, It's pretty odd that they would feel the need to say that, but that's a, that paragraph's particularly relevant to our time. Uh, a man and a woman. One man, one woman. <clears throat> Point two. Marriage was ordained for the mutual help of husband and wife, for the increase of mankind with legitimate issue, and of the church with a holy seed, and for preventing of uncleanness. One thing I've read um, about the Westminster Divines and like the, the reason they worded this, this part the way they did, the first thing they list here about why marriage was ordained was for the mutual help of husband and wife. For about a thousand years, the church had kind of looked at, at marriage as a necessary evil. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, you got to have marriage uh, so you can procreate. Mm-hmm. So there's more people. The world needs to be peopled. Um, but they saw, looking at scripture, and they finally were able to kind of move away from some of Augustine's influence and some of the early church writers because of the influence of Gnosticism, the influence of, of Neoplatonism, the idea that matter is kind of mm-hmm. bad. I mean, Augustine himself says that sex, even in marriage, is still a culpa. He used the Latin word culpa. It's still kind of a bad thing. And the Puritans and the Reformers going back to the word of God, we're like, no, it's not. It's a blessing from God. And marriage is not a necessary evil. It's a blessing. It's something that we should be, we should rejoice in. And it was ordained by God for the mutual help of, of man and wife and for the increase of mankind on the earth. Okay. So they didn't, they didn't put the increase of mankind on the earth first. They put the mutual help of husband and wife because marriage is a good thing. Remember Luther, Luther uh, was a celibate monk. He took a vow of chastity. But when he when they when the Reformation happens, remember what what he does? He gets married mm-hmm. to a runaway nun, and they had six kids. 
And Luther's stuff on marriage is really, is great. It's wonderful stuff. He adored his wife. He just absolutely loved her. Okay. Point three. It is lawful for all sorts of people to marry who are able with judgment to give their consent. Yet it is the duty of Christians to marry only in the Lord. And therefore, such as profess the true religion, reformed religion, should not marry with infidels, that's like an atheist, papists, or other idolaters. Neither should such as are godly be unequally yoked by marrying with such as are notoriously wicked in their life or maintain damnable heresies. Now, I think one thing for us today that's important is that the opening line there, it is lawful for all sorts of people to marry, meaning it doesn't matter what color you are or, like, or where you're from. You know, if you're a human being, you, know, you, can, you can marry someone. People have asked me, it's been surprising how, how many times I've been asked, um, do you believe in interracial marriage? And I'm like, well, there's only the human race. Right. Um, but uh, what do you mean by this? Are you talking about, like, well, well black people and white people? I'm like, well, number one, I've never met a black person. I know some brown people and some darker brown people. And by the way, I'm not white. Black is like your shirt. Yeah, yeah, that's black. <laughs> right, and we're not... We're, we're not, not like, white either, yeah. They call us white, we're not like white like a sheet of paper. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. We're, we just have different melanin content in our skin, we have different shapes to our eyes, and um, but we're all descended from the same two people, and so it's lawful for all sorts of people to marry each other. And I like to see that. I think that's a good thing, when you see people that look real different, that are married, um... But, yeah, people will ask, well, what about interracial marriage? I'm like, well, you need to define the word race when you say racial. But hopefully you're not using the word the way that Darwin used it. Yeah, okay? you know, that's held within a lot of different racial classes, though. They're mm-hmm. just as opposed to it as what you hear. I know. From some circles. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's, a, I guess, a widely held belief in a lot of Baptist circles. There are, it is. I've been around. In those circles, that's right. There was a guy, a speaker at Answers in Genesis, um, who was kind of like just a regular Caucasian, Anglo-Saxon, like like you and me, um, who was married to a Japanese woman. And because of that, uh, he, although many of these like primitive uh, Baptist churches, uh, they agreed with their, his stance on creation. They were not okay with, with his being married to a Japanese woman. <laughs> I just thought, that is so incredible to me yeah. that, that people could be that way. So, yeah, if you're a human being made in God's image and you're the opposite uh, biological sex, you can get married as long as those other conditions are are met there. Okay, point four. Marriage ought to be uh, within degrees of consanguinity or affinity, or or, or ought not to be within degrees of consanguinity or affinity forbidden by the word. You guys know what that's talking about? People that you're closely related to. Like, yeah, a blood relationship, like a first cousin, even kind of thing. Nor can such incestuous marriages ever be made lawful by any law of man or consent of parties, so as those persons may live together as man and wife. Okay, so you can't marry someone that's a close blood relative to you. Okay, um, five. Adultery or fornication committed after a contract being detected before marriage giveth just occasion to the innocent party to dissolve the contract. In the case of adultery after marriage... It is lawful for the innocent party to sue out a divorce, and after the divorce to marry one another as if the offending party were dead. Now, that's powerfully stated. Now, have you guys ever heard of the permanence view of marriage? You ever heard of that? Vody Balcom holds this view. John Piper holds this view. It's, it's the view that marriage, under no circumstances, can you ever divorce someone. Mm-hmm. Ever. No matter what. They can be beating you, abusing you. You cannot divorce them. Also, adultery. Adultery, you're still married to that person. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't buy that because of the exception clauses in Matthew's gospel. Mm-hmm. Say, if anyone divorces his wife, except for the term there is porneia. This is an issue I've had to study because I've had some correspondence. There are people that um, outside of our church that have been like, yeah, we you know... We're thinking about, you know, maybe coming, but but we hold this view of psalms only, or we hold this view about um, divine permanence in marriage. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, well, let's talk about this. And have you would not believe how long these email exchanges have gone on yeah. <laughs> to try to persuade them? No, there there is such a thing as divorce. I was I was told the biblical term, the Greek term for divorce, simply means they don't live in the same house anymore. 
I'm like, what? So I, I, said, I even showed them the lexicography of the term. The term means the dissolution of a marriage. It doesn't mean you just don't, you don't live in the same house anymore. Yeah. But it's pretty, some people hold that view real strong. And they would say, if you have a divorce in your past, you cannot be a minister, and you can't be an elder either. Well, maybe they need to read what how Jesus talks about it yeah. in, the, in the New Testament. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, he, he says, because of the hardness of your hearts. You here, here, that's right. Here, here's how Bodhi Bauckham responds to it. I've, I've listened to his sermon. He says, the only reason that Matthew has these exception clauses is because Joseph was engaged to be married to the Virgin Mary. And then she was found to be pregnant. Obviously, Joseph was thinking she's obviously been with some other man. Right. And so he was mindful to put her away, to divorce her. Because in Jewish um, parlance, an engagement was, was seen as a marriage mm-hmm. in, a sen- in one sense. And so the argument is he's only, Matthew includes those exception clauses to protect Joseph from being attacked for, enga- for divorce or, or anything like that. And so it's only divorce of, a, of an engagement. It's only breaking off an engagement, not an actual marriage. And I say, that's, okay, number, and it's like, okay, you have to accept every step of this argument or, or the whole thing fall, falls apart. Right. And I'm thinking, you can successfully challenge every single one of those steps. Well, Matthew's the Jewish gospel. Matthew's the only one with the exceptions. Matthew's trying to protect Joseph. I'm like, where does the text ever say that? Jesus never says anything about Joseph. When he, when he, in the Sermon on the Mount. And so I'm like, okay. When you have to engage in that much special pleading for something, it's probably because your position is just wrong. Yeah. Okay, so. I, you know, in, in a way, I, I hear what they're saying. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think a lot of marriages are dissolved before. There's not a you doubt know, about it. not yep. work. Marriage mm-hmm. is a, it's a struggle. It's part of the race of life. It's, you know, hard, it is. it's a marathon. It's it like is. how Paul equates our our salvation, you know, us mm-hmm. running the race. Yep. Marriage is the same way. It, mm-hmm. it takes work. You get out of it what you put into it. That's right. And it, it's and it's going to really push you. It's going to be very difficult at times. And I've I've had arguments, you know, with people over the years who desperately wanted to divorce, and they just didn't have grounds. And they tried and tried and tried to convince me they had grounds. I'm like you don't. You still it almost don't. never works out better. The other way, it doesn't. You know, when they, when they, I've seen people, more people, get married to somebody else, and mm-hmm. then years later they come back and they marry their first. Re- yeah, really, really. Yeah. Wow. I have friends that have done that. Really, really interesting. So, but what you just said though, that they actually bring it up in the next point. You see it. Although the corruption of man be such as is apt to study arguments unduly. To put asunder those whom God hath joined together in marriage. That's kind of a flowery way of saying people look for reasons to, to do this. Yet nothing but adultery or such willful desertion as can no way be remedied by the church or civil magistrate is cause sufficient of dissolving the bond of marriage. Because there's only two things. Willful desertion. Now, that and, and adultery obviously is one. You can divorce that person you don't have to yeah you don't have to you could you could forgive them and i've seen that happen too where adultery's been committed and they forgive and that's wonderful if they if they can do that but they don't have to do that they don't have to they have the right and they would have the full support of of myself and the elders if that happened you want to divorce the guy or you want to divorce her go right ahead you have the right to do that or willful desertion now i would uh, very carefully here though would include physical abuse as, as a oh, form yeah. of desertion yeah, yeah that yeah. you you have deserted your marriage covenant if you're beating up your wife yeah she has no obligation to to stay there so what well, what do you guys think about so some I, people I, would say I, I no would agree you, with that, yeah. I've okay seen, all right i've seen okay. situations like that the other thing that i was going to say there's cases where i've seen of of uh drug or alcohol yes mm-hmm. very severe drug mm-hmm. or alcohol abuse where it's been years and you know there's been rehabilitation situations and yeah there's just no there's no recovery for the the, yeah. the other party and then yeah. i mean those are those are challenging situations they are. but they're they're you're bringing another sin mm-hmm. into that relationship 
Yeah. And that's why, it, you know, the prohibitions and, you know, I think what you do with the marriage counseling and stuff is, is very good. Yeah. Because you have to, you should know the person that you're getting married to. That's right. That's right. And if they have those tendencies. What about, here's, here's one scenario that's come up before an unrepentant porn addiction. Does that count as adultery? Well, I don't know what it's. It's <laughs> it's, it's really an it's an adulterer of the heart. Yeah. Because men men may not think that bothers, but it, that's a psychological thing that happens with men. You know? Yeah. Yeah. What about it's not not a porn addiction, but in our hearts and minds, we struggle with lusting after women we're not married to. Does that count as adultery? <laughs> I think you, I think you can get. Sure, yeah, it, it can. Well, I mean, which, which Christ called that? He says this is, you have already committed adultery in your heart. Adultery in your heart. See, but the, these are the kinds of things that will come up, and then pastorally, you've got to address it. Like, Do I, do I think yeah. in a literal sense, no, but I think it is mm-hmm. neglect of the marriage. Yeah. You as the man are, mm-hmm. are abandoning, abandoning, your responsibility yeah. to love and cherish mm-hmm. and uphold your wife yeah. because you're lusting after someone else. Yeah. So that's dividing your attention. Yeah, and one of the marriage vows is keeping yourself holy unto them, forsaking all others. You know, those are vows that, that you now, make. Now, culture today in the world would tell you... <laughs> that's do, all fine, right? Do what you want, mm-hmm. you know? It's more about you than it is about anybody else, and really, that's what most divorce is. It's a, divor- a divorce is is a, a selfishness guilt. That's right. You know, it each is. party doesn't want to make the sacrifice. Yeah, and the purpose of marriage is to make us more like Christ and to bear the fruits of the Spirit. And one of those fruits is patience, and you know, and goodness, kindness, faithfulness. You know, yeah. those are things that are supposed to be and produced by it. Humility is. The, mm-hmm. One it's of not, the key things that I look at is just humble yourself. Let go of your pride and your... That's right, our pride. And we die to self, and we put that person ahead of ourselves. And, yeah. So I think marriage will bring out, like, the, the very best in people, but it also brings out just the, the most morbidly selfish parts of them, too. But if you're an officer in the church, though, like, you probably... Pe- people start talking to you about stuff that goes on, and... This chapter is a is a tough one. Marriage and divorce is a is a very difficult part of like churchly ministry. Yeah. Because it's just there's so much pain and heartache involved with all mm-hmm. of it. Very personal. Deeply. Yeah. yeah. And and one thing, um, I guess by God's grace, being an elder and a pastor for for as long as I have, it's just made me shudder again and again at like seeing the destructive power of this stuff up close. I just always go home and like just grab Amy and hug her. Like I don't ever want to mess this up like ever. And well, I was a, I was the product of a divorce. And mm. I can personally tell people and I had an alcoholic father, mm. and I mm. can tell people <laughs> it is not. And that that's the thing that kind of prompted me. You know, I said you know when I get married, I'm not. You know, yeah. going to do the things that my dad did. You know? Yeah, yeah. It can have that positive effect too. People that, that see something really bad, mm-hmm. very often they'll be afraid of getting married or, or whatever. They'll think I'm, I'm going to end up doing the same thing. But it really should just be just the opposite. That I'm, I'm not going to repeat the things I saw done wrong. Well, essentially, I was fed, you know, what I tell people lies when I was younger. Don't get married. Don't have kids. Yeah. You know all that stuff. And so I kind of grew up with that thought in my head. Mm-hmm. And then as I, as I had kids, you know, I can tell people now, you know, if I had it to do all over again, I'd probably have six or seven kids. You know, I started realizing through the process yeah. of having kids, you know, this is really what we're meant to do. Right? Yeah, it is. Yeah. Kids, kids, I, I can't imagine growing old and not having my yeah. kids or grandkids in my life. Mm-hmm. You know, that that's yeah. That's the lie that they don't tell you. You know, at some point, 
you're you're going to age and, and you're going to appreciate having those people. Your Roth IRA is not going to keep you company when you're that's, old. That's right. Yeah. These days people just get you know dogs or cats anyway. I know. Yeah, it's that ain't going to cut it. And still, it's not the yeah. Same. I mean, we not. have we have pets. That's not. I, I, mm-hmm. I saw this horrible phrase that's very true these days. It said. Um, these days, plants are the new pets, and pets are the new kids. And I was like, that's terribly sad. That's true. Mental. That's a good way of putting it, yeah. <laughs> plants are the pets, and, and, and uh, dogs are the... I mean, yeah. pets have a unique thing. Yeah, you know, sure. we have We have pets, but, you know, if you're going to ask me what I take our dog commute, or jo- Joshua is my son, it's... Really- mm-hmm, that's right, yeah. <laughs> there's no... There's no- choice of that yeah i've lost track of how many pets are in my house like so my house is like noah's ark it's, it's terrible but okay that's good that's a good discussion of, of marriage and divorce okay chapter 25 of the church this is extremely important stuff here the catholic or universal church which is invisible consists of the whole number of the elect that have been are or shall be gathered into one under christ the head thereof and is the spouse, the body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Okay, so there, right out of the gate, you have that really important distinction, the visible or the invisible church, and then there's the visible church. Okay, and there's a huge overlap between the two, but they're, they're not a one-to-one correspondence because there will always be false professors in the visible church. The visible church, which is also Catholic or universal under the gospel, not confined to one nation as before under the law, consists of all those throughout the world that profess the true religion and of their children. Like on ordination exams, licensure exams, when we used to do those, I would ask the questions. I would ask guys, what is the visible church? And I've had a couple candidates, like for Presbyterian pulpit ministry. Um, the visible church is all those that profess the true religion. I'm like, and? And they're like, oh, yeah, and, and their children too. That, that's right, and their households. Okay. So it's an important little little add-on there. <clears throat> and is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and family of God, out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. So they, they do make an allowance there. You know, God is able to work over against above ordinary means to save people if he, if he wants to. But it's not ordinary, and we shouldn't assume he's doing that either. Okay, okay point three. Unto this Catholic visible church, Christ hath given the ministry, oracles, and ordinances of God, for the gathering and perfecting of the saints in this life to the end of the world, and doth, by his own presence and spirit, according to his promise, make them effectual thereunto. Okay, so the church has those gifts, the sacraments, um, the, the ministry of the word, uh, the ordinances of God, to gather the saints and uh, to perfect them. Okay, okay point four. <clears throat> this Catholic church hath been sometimes more, sometimes less visible. And particular churches, which are members thereof, are more or less pure, according as the doctrine of the gospel is taught and embraced, ordinances administered, and public worship performed more or less purely in them. Now, you might read that and think, you know, well, that, that's pretty obvious. But that's actually, that's a major distinction that they're making between the biblical view of local churches and like the Roman Catholic or the Eastern Orthodox view. Whereas for them, it's if the bishop that ordained the priest over your parish is in communion with the Bishop of Rome, you have a true church. Then it's a true church. Whereas the reformers could see in scripture, like you think about the, the letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation, Revelation two and three, remember the church at Sardis, the church at Thyatira, the church of Philadelphia. What does Jesus say to each one of those churches? You guys are doing some things right. And you're doing some things wrong. He tells them, keep doing this. Stop doing this. Okay, now there's they're all true churches, but they're more or less pure. It's not a matter of well, you're in union with this guy who was ordained by this guy that knew this guy, that one of the apostles or something like that. It's always a question of faithfulness to the word of God. Mm-hmm. That's what determines whether you're in a true church or not. Mm-hmm. Okay, are the, is the word of God preached there accurately? Is the gospel preached there accurately? Do you have the sacraments administered accurately? And do you practice church discipline? Is there some distinction between your members and the rest of the unbelieving world? Those are the marks of a, of a true church. Okay, Not, is was I ordained by a bishop that, that's in communion with a, the Roman bishop or something like that? So that's a, a real important 
this is a uh, point number four. I think is just, is extremely useful because churches are more or less pure. Okay. Now, when a local church ceases to be a true church, is when they get the gospel wrong. If you get the gospel wrong, that at that moment your church isn't a church anymore. Okay. Point five. The purest churches under heaven are subject to both mixture and error, and some have so degenerated as to become no churches of Christ, but synagogues of Satan. Nevertheless, there shall always be a church on earth to worship God according to his will. Okay, so um, that's one thing in, in arguing with Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox people over the years, they are constantly talking about their idea of apostolic succession. You ever talk to someone about that apostolic succession? Our bishops were ordained by bishops that were ordained by bishops that were ordained by the apostles. Oh yeah, yeah. and I'm like, that's nice, and I couldn't care less either, because all I want to know is do they teach what the apostles taught? Yeah. And if they don't, I don't care who ordained them. And the you know where we learn Cause, that? Because even the even the apostles had issues. With exactly, Paul said himself, "If I come back and tell you something wrong, don't believe it." I'm anathema. And, and Paul, he'd be the first one to tell you, yeah, we ordained these guys. If they go off the rails, don't have anything to do with them. So it's not a matter of who ordained who. It's has the truth been passed on here. Okay. And so that's one thing the reformers had to answer, you know, their critics in the 16th century. Well, you guys are just out on, on your own doing stuff. And their response was, no, you guys have been out on your own doing stuff since like the 600s. When you started worshiping icons and statues and the Virgin Mary and everything else. We're just trying to go back to the, to the very best of the early church. That's one thing. If you read Augustine and Luther and the Reformers, they quote constantly from the patristic sources from those early church fathers. They went back to the very best of the early church, but they also got rid of all the stuff about purgatory and indulgences, the papacy, and um, these silly uh, relic places where you could go look at you know, a femur from one of the apostles or wood from Noah's Ark or nails from the cross of Jesus. You guys have heard me rail on that stuff. Luther jokingly said, there are enough nails from the cross to shoe every horse in Saxony. He said, there's enough wood from Jesus's cross to rebuild Noah's Ark 12 times <laughs> in Europe. And it was just a bunch of pious frauds. They actually have a statue in Rome, one of the, I don't know where it's at, but I've seen pictures of it where it's like Mary and then it has the reformers. It's like mm. Mary and then the reformers. It was essentially a shot <clears throat> at the refor whole Reformation. Oh. Mm -hmm. So it's a, a statue that represents, you know, the, the Reformation as an anathema holding up. Oh, I see. I think it's Mary. It, it may be something else. It's been a while since I've seen it. But, yeah. But, yeah, they showed that, that uh, picture, you know. It was something that I think I was watching a thing on the Waldensians and okay, yeah, talking yeah. about how even the Waldensian church, they still have it in Rome, Yeah, but it's been compromised by Rome. Oh, really, and really, really. How the, the Waldensians have been corrupted yeah. by. Have you heard of that, Shay, the Waldensian church? They, they um, lived in the mountains in southern France and southern Spain and northern Italy in the Alps. And they were a group, a very large group of Christians that um, developed their own theology completely separate from the rise of papal Rome for centuries. Um, and they were there uh, in the 1100s, 1200s. The Inquisition was actually formed in 1203 to exterminate them, the Waldensians. But we have their creeds, and there's actually buildings in the Alps where they actually had church. And when the Reformation happened, apparently Calvin and uh, in Geneva, they made contact with the Waldensians. And the Waldensians actually said to the Reformers, it's about time you guys got your act together. <laughs> yeah, because they always rejected the Mariolatry. They rejected purgatory. They didn't believe in the papacy. And we actually have, I've got some books where they've got the, their creeds listed. There's like the Waldensian Creed of 1150. And it's, it's a lot like the Westminster Standards. Wow. It's really cool. Yeah, yeah. it's really amazing. But some of the stories of them being, like the stuff that you were watching about the Waldensians, they talk about them being killed by the Pope's armies and all oh, that. Oh, yeah. Horror, they, yeah. They, they said that the Waldensians, some of the, the tactics that they used changed because Waldensians memorized the Bible. Yeah, yeah. And they would, as they were being tortured, they would be reciting that to their torturers. Mm. And they were converting some of their torturers. Wow. Not them, but the words wow. that they were saying were converting 
sure. some of the, the torturers. So then they started coming up with means to keep their mouths shut while they tortured them. So yeah. they couldn't. The stories related to them are so awful. What what the uh, <clears throat> Inquisition and the Pope's armies did to them, but the Waldensians because they lived in the in the high mountain areas, they actually had um, ways of triggering avalanches. <laughs> and the the armies would try to get up there, and they had certain things they would do to like to ignite an avalanche, and it would protect them. Wow. But but eventually they were able to they were able to get up there and. Mm-hmm. Uh, Waldensians would hide in caves, and the the, uh, the Pope's armies would build huge fires in front of the, the mouth mm-hmm. of the cave that would consume all the oxygen. They start suffocating, mm-hmm. and they, yeah, there's so, so many terrible stories. But a, yeah. you know, it was a shame because they weren't bothering anyone. You know, <clears throat> yeah, I know. Pretty much kept to themselves, and they would go out, and they were they were part of their youth of their passage into adulthood was mm-hmm. like doing missionary work. With, yeah. With yeah, the population, so they would go out and try to spread the gospel. They would come down from the mountains and pass out tracts in papal Rome cities and towns. Yeah, yeah, their whole story is pretty pretty remarkable. But okay, um, let's look at the next page there, the number six. Of course, they've got to get this in here. There is no other head of the church but the Lord Jesus Christ. Neither can the Pope of Rome in any sense be head thereof. <laughs> so yeah. All right, chapter 26 of the Communion of Saints. All saints that are united to Jesus Christ, their head, by his spirit and by faith, have fellowship with him in his graces, sufferings, death, resurrection, and glory. And being united to one another in love, they have communion in each other's graces, uh, gifts and graces, and are obliged to the performance of such duties, public and private, and as do conduce to their mutual good, both in the inward and outward man. You know, when we had our, our conference on cultivating a healthy church life, I was tasked to uh, speak on edifying one another, and I just kind of looked real, real carefully again at Romans 12. Romans 12 is like is such a convicting passage. I mean, it's he, the Holy Spirit says that you have gifts, you are obliged to to perform them diligently with your fellow church members. And so not being part of the life of your local church is, is a very serious sin against God because he saved you. He put you in a local church. He, he says, exercise your gifts diligently there. Whatever it is, do it diligently. You know, it was kind of, uh, I mean, providentially, I had actually, not knowing that you were going to be talking about it, I had read Romans 12 that morning. Wow, and then cool. And talked about it and I was like, all right, God, I get it. <laughs> all right. <laughs> yeah, that's good. <laughs> Yep. But that's where they're getting this from, is that we have this obligation to do that, to share it with each other and um, help each other out. Okay. Uh, and are obliged to the performance of them. Okay. Point two. Saints by profession are bound to maintain a holy fellowship and communion in the worship of God and in performing such other spiritual services as tend to their mutual edification, as also in relieving each other in outward things according to their several abilities and necessities. Which communion, as God offereth opportunity, is to be extended unto all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. Okay, so churches have, have a long history of helping each other out, of, of being connected to each other and helping each other out. And it's interesting, I'm sure you guys probably have seen, have you ever seen like collections of some of the earliest post-apostolic um, Christian writings? They're letters to churches just like the New Testament is. Like Polycarp wrote a letter to the church at Philippi. And Clement wrote a letter to the Corinthians, you know, churches, they were connected to each other. And they, they had a sense of, they wanted to know how each other were doing so they could help each other out. Okay. Point three, this communion, which the saints have with Christ, doth not make them in any wise partakers of the substance of his Godhead. Now, why do you think they said that? There's a passage in Second Peter chapter 1 where it says, for we all have become partakers of the divine nature. And Rome has misused that passage for centuries to try to say that saints, you know, number one, their use of the word saint is real different from the biblical use. They think a saint is someone who went straight to heaven, didn't have to go to purgatory, and etc. But that we're kind of divinized almost, so we can give homage and veneration to um, to saints in heaven and it's like no it, we're, we do not partake of the substance of the Godhead 
That's why they said that there. Or to be equal with Christ in any respect, either wish to affirm as impious and blasphemous. Nor doth their communion one with another as saints take away or infringe the title or propriety which each man hath in his goods and possessions. <laughs> um, that is a shot at some uh, medieval scholastic views. Like uh, you guys have heard of Thomas Aquinas. Aquinas, as I understand it, um, taught that everybody owns everything. Like, so Jesus, I actually... So Jesus was a communist. Kind of, yeah. <laughs> I actually own all your stuff, and you own all my stuff. So if I need something, I can just take it from you. Or if I've got something you need, you just, you just come take it. And that they're, they're saying the doctrine of the communion of saints does not mean we don't have the right to private property anymore. Okay, and so that was a, a medieval idea. Well, the Old Testament defines that as well as you go through it. Yeah. Private property. I mean, yeah. God, yes, God made everything, but we, we can own stuff. And, and if I own and it, it's, it's not yours. And we're responsible stewards over what we do own. Yeah. We are to be responsible stewards. can steal if everything, every, everyone owns everything. I know, I know, exactly. Right, right. Yeah. that's true. There's a, a series of lectures, and they're really good. Greg Bonson um, did eight sermons on the Eighth Commandment, you shall not steal, and all the, the implications from that. And it's really, really good, like economic policies and, and all sorts of stuff, thinking, man, the Eighth Commandment is only two Hebrew words, and he got eight sermons out of it. But, but you think there's a lot of implications that follow from the fact that stealing is a sin. Okay, so our communion with one another doesn't mean that we don't own anything, because we, we do. And what I own is mine. It doesn't belong to someone else unless I give it to them. But this is saying, if we do see one another having needs, we should be generous and we should share with each other. Okay, that's all it's saying. Okay, chapter 27. Chapter 27 is a real important chapter, because it spells out first our sacramental theology. Then, in the next chapter, it goes into baptism and the Lord's Supper. One of the things that to me is very strange is you guys have heard of the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, the Baptist Confession. They basically took the Westminster Confession and modified different things in it. One of the things that to me makes no sense about that confession, the 1689 Baptist Confession, they erased chapter 27. They just deleted it. And I've always thought, why would you do that? This chapter is really important. Like, it spells out your, your view of sacraments in general. Baptists really don't talk a lot about sacraments. Though. Yeah, they don't like the word sacrament. They, they just in the Baptist churches that I've been associated with. Yeah. People will say, well, we don't like the word sacrament. We prefer the word ordinance. And I think the Shorter Catechism says, what is a sacrament? A sacrament is a holy ordinance. <laughs> so they're really the same thing. But chapter 27, this chapter right here was extremely useful to me to see biblically what it's talking about. Sacraments are holy signs and seals of the covenant of grace, immediately instituted by God to represent Christ and his benefits and to confirm our interest in him. As also to put a visible difference between those that belong unto the church and the rest of the world and solemnly to engage them in the, to the service of God in Christ according to his word. Okay, now point two. If you guys have heard me preach on sacraments before, you know I have hammered this point as hard as I can because if you don't get this one, you're not you're going to be so the, the biblical way that sacraments are described is really going to lead to confusion. But this is really helpful. There is in every sacrament a spiritual relation or sacramental union between the sign and the thing signified whence it comes to pass that the names and effects of the one are attributed to the other. Okay? I want you to guys take your Bibles. I want you to see this. Look at Genesis chapter 17, if you've got your, your Bible there. Genesis 17. This is where you know, God institutes circumcision. And in verses 10 and 11, you see exactly what the confession is talking about here. And this is very, very useful. Okay, now chapter 17, verse 10. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you, every male child among you shall be circumcised. Verse 11, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. But notice 
What does God call circumcision in verse 10? In the opening line of verse 10, he calls circumcision what? My covenant, yeah. What does that remind you of in the New Testament? What does Jesus call the bread? My flesh. Yeah, my my body. And what does he call the cup? My blood. blood. Same exact identical thing. The Old Testament, the sacramental theology, same as the New Testament. So God will call circumcision my covenant. Now, is it actually his covenant? No. What does verse 11 say? It's a sign of the covenant. But God will often call the sign what it signifies. Same thing with uh, baptism. Baptism is referred to as the washing of regeneration. And because of that, a lot of people, well, I guess baptism regenerates. No, it doesn't. It's a sign of regeneration. But God has established this pattern of calling the, the, the signs what they signify. Jesus said, this is my body. This is my blood. Now, we know that the bread and the wine are signs of the, of the body and blood of Christ. They aren't actually his body and blood. No more than circumcision is actually a covenant. Okay, Circumcision is a sign of a covenant. But he calls it my covenant because God likes to do that. God establishes this pattern in scripture. He'll call the sign what it signifies. And that shouldn't confuse us. And yet it always has confused people. The early church struggled. They thought baptism you know, regenerated people. It, it doesn't do that. They, they thought the body and blood or the, the bread and the wine, you know, Rome, Rome developed it to such a radical extreme. It actually turns into, you know, the way they put it, Jesus Christ, body, soul, blood, and divinity, and they, and they even worship it. Okay, but these are signs of God's covenant of grace. They, they, aren't, they aren't what they signify, but that's the, the error that you see constantly, people confusing the sign with what it signifies. You remember the illustration I used? Like, if you get near the beach and there's a sign that says the beach ahead, if you set up all your stuff and get out your, your flotation devices and your towels under the sign, when the beach is down over there, that would look kind of weird, wouldn't it? Yeah. Okay. But that's why when we take the Lord's Supper, it, to, to turn the Lord's Supper into something that you venerate or worship or whatever really misses the whole point. Yeah. The, point is, the point of the Lord's Supper is to point you to the finished work of Christ. That's what a sign does. It points you to something else. So really, really important that we make, make that distinction. So in every sacrament, there's a spiritual relation or sacramental union between the sign and the thing, the thing signified. So once it comes to pass that the effects of the one are attributed to the other. Okay. And there's another, there's another parallel to this in the incarnation. Because Jesus has two natures, right? One human, one divine. In, in Acts chapter 20... Uh, Paul tells the Ephesian elders to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Does God have blood? No. But the 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 attributes of one nature are being ascribed to the other. That doesn't destroy the incarnation. It's simply emphasizing the union of the two natures. But God purchased the church with his own blood. Same kind of thing there. Okay, God likes to do that. And if God likes to talk that way, that's okay. He expects us to understand what he, what he means. Okay, so I can't emphasize that enough. It's a shame to me that sacraments are, are such a source of division. They're, they really shouldn't be. I think that they're actually they're far more simple than people make them. But anyway, okay, point three. The grace which is exhibited in or by the sacraments, rightly used, is not conferred by any power in them, Neither doth the efficacy of a sacrament depend upon the piety or intention of him that doth administer it. You should be, praise God for that one. It doesn't depend on my piety. <laughs> but upon the work of the Spirit and the word of institution, which contains, together with a precept authorizing the use thereof, a promise of benefit to worthy receivers. Okay? So, for me, um, the efficacy of, the, of, the, of baptism, the Lord's Supper, depends on God and depends on the uh, the words of institution in Scripture. That's why if I if I say it wrong, if I said the words of institution incorrectly, then you could question if that was legitimately um, baptism. Mm-hmm. If I only baptize someone in the name of Jesus and not in the name of the Father and the Holy Spirit as well, uh, you could make a case. I think you could make a case that wasn't Christian baptism. Then, like you need to get the words right. You need to, to say it the way it's said here. Not because the words are magical or anything like that, because they're not, but you're not doing it the way that scripture tells you to do it. So that's, that's a real important part of, of uh, sacramental theology. 
and it doesn't depend on the on the piety or the intention of, of him that administers it. Now, one one question that that comes up, and I I will admit I'm somewhat in the minority, although I do not understand why I'm in the minority on this. But a lot of people think Roman Catholic baptism is true Christian baptism. I don't. I never have. And people say, well, they, well, they 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 claim that it's like the literal the literal and the transubstantiation, and mm-hmm. that's not. That will they think? I mean, even even at the Last Supper, when you read through that, that's mm-hmm. that's not what. Well, no, no, ba- baptism, baptism, Catholic baptism. Yeah, most Reformed guys think that that you shouldn't rebaptize someone. My my position is you haven't been baptized. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like remember Enrique when we baptized him, yeah. and we talked about that, and I said that's not Christian baptism because number one, a priest in the Roman Catholic Church in no way, shape, or form is a minister of the gospel. Okay, that's, that's my first problem. Um, the second issue I have is if the institution that ordained you denies the gospel, it is in no way a church either. So I've always been baffled by that because Charles Hodge and John Calvin and others like, no, this is legit baptism because they believe in the Trinity Whatever, and I say, okay, you need to have the right doctrine of God. I agree with that, but you also need to be part of a visible institution that affirms the true gospel. If you don't, it's not Christian baptism. Now, there are some that agree with me. James Henley Thornwell, a good Southern Presbyterian theologian, wrote a whole book on it, and um, I've actually put it on the rack out there. I don't know if anyone's ever seen it, but it's called Sacramental Sorcery, <laughs> the invalidity of Catholic baptism. But, but anyway, so. All right, point four, let's, we'll finish this and then we'll, we'll be done. Point four, there can there be only two sacraments ordained by Christ our Lord in the gospel, that is to say, baptism and the supper of the Lord, neither of which may be dispensed by any, but a minister of the word lawfully ordained. Okay, and why are they saying there's only two? Because how many did Rome say there were? Seven, yeah. So they had five extra ones, too. Okay, point five, the sacraments of the Old Testament in regard to the spiritual things thereby signified and exhibited were for substance the same with those of the new. And this is something I've told my, my Baptist friends many times. The only way that you could get me to question the practice of infant baptism, you would have to show me that circumcision and baptism are signs of different things. That not only has the sign changed, but what it signifies has changed. And having looked at every occurrence of the noun and the verb circumcised in the entire Old Testament, circumcision is a sign of the gospel. It's a sign of salvation. That's what it is. And it was given to babies who could not make a profession of faith. And that's what made me go like rethink the whole thing. Again and again, I, I used to think, if God had asked me, I would have said, look, God, don't you want to have a church that's pure? Like that has more believers than unbelievers in it? Okay, then only people that make a profession of faith can be part of it. But the way you've set this up in the Old Testament, you have all these babies being circumcised and brought into the visible church. It's almost like you just wanted a church full of unbelievers or something. But God didn't ask me for my thoughts on this. And circumcision is a sign of the same thing that baptism is. And that's the reason that you see it, it, it applied in the same way. You see households circumcised, households Baptized, And that's why I emphasize that point every time I baptize a baby. Because I want people to see this is not some weird, you know, we, practice. You're in the land of believer's baptism, so. I know. <laughs> so, <laughs> so even, gotta, even when you say that, I know there's people out there that are wrestling. I know. Baptizing a baby. So, yeah. I, one of the arguments I've heard is that uh, circumcision is just for males. Mm-hmm. So how, is, how would we... Is it because we're part of the covenant of, like, our father? And how, how, is that, how does that work? Yeah, it, it's, it's just an, an illustration of the greater grace of the new covenant. It's more inclusive. Okay. Yeah, and so, like, Acts 8.12 says men and women were baptized. So we know that women were baptized, too. Right. But the fact that, that the sign of the gospel now is, is broader, more inclusive, it's not largely limited to a, to a nation. It's not limited to one sex, either. It's just one way, like the covenant of grace starts out real small. I mean, it's like Noah and his family, and then it's real, real, real small. Abraham, and then it gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and now it's like it's just gotten wider, wider, wider. So it makes sense that that following that pattern of greater, greater grace as time goes on, 
that the sign would be more inclusive. What, which is another reason. It's like you guys are actually arguing that the the covenant of grace and the way it's administered is actually more exclusive now, as opposed to more inclusive. Which is another thing that's kind of it just doesn't make any sense with the flow of redemptive history. Yeah. But, so yeah. I say I I've had discussions with people and I said, well, I was baptized in an infant as an infant in the Presbyterian Church, and mm-hmm. then I was baptized as an adult in the Baptist Church. So if it means anything, I've checked all the boxes. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so that's a good good place to stop. So we covered some good ground there. So we've only got um, 28, 29, 30, 31, 32, 33. We only have six chapters to go. So I think one or two more meetings we should be done. And then we'll read Strouch's book, um, just kind of go through that a couple times and talk about the main points he brings up about minis- the, the, the uh, ministry of deacons. But do you guys have any questions or thoughts or anything? All right, I'll close this one. Father, thank you for this time to be together with my brothers, and I pray that you bless the rest of our day. Help us to be faithful husbands and faithful fathers, uh, to love one another well, to love our church. And uh, we are so thankful to you for the gospel and for Jesus and everything he accomplished to redeem us from our sins and to give us eternal life. And we pray you'd help us to glorify his name and to spread his, his glory and to shine his light to all who are around us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Right. Thanks, guys.